Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Anne Eller. She's the author of We Dream Together, Dominican Independence, Haiti, and the Fight for Caribbean Freedom, published in 2016 by Duke University Press. This book promises to overturn our narratives of conflict between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, arguing instead for a long history of anti-colonial cooperation and struggle at the popular level. This careful and thoroughly researched book will challenge a lot of the things you thought you knew about the 19th century Caribbean. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Anne. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, before we start talking about the book, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be a historian of the Caribbean? Oh, sure. That's a somewhat circuitous path. So uh, I was uh, teaching high school uh, here in New York City, and I needed a content-based master's. So... I don't know how much to admit on a podcast, but my original intent was not to complete the PhD. So I, I entered originally for the study of West African history, uh, which is something that I focused on during my undergrad. And I switched to, to study of the diaspora, but I had the good luck of working with um, Dr. Michael Gomez and Ada Ferrer uh, in my early years of study. So that really brought me to the Caribbean specifically, and, and some of my coursework uh, drew me closer to the questions of the Dominican Republic at the time we read Richard Turritz's book, uh, which had just been published in, in those years, Foundations of Despotism. So how did you get to the topic of the book in particular? Also circuitous. <laughs> uh, so I, I started out thinking that I was going to work on the period that is known in Dominican historiography as España Boa, which is the, the period after Spain, so the sovereignty of Spain has been nominally restored uh, by a restorationist, a small restorationist movement in 1808 to 1809 uh, after some tumult in the wake of the Haitian Revolution. In the Haitian Revolution, it passes briefly, very briefly, to the hands of Toussaint Louverture, and then again to some, the hands of some pro-slavery uh, French governors, and then a joint movement from Santo Domingo and, and Puerto Rico uh, restores uh, Spanish sovereignty. And in that period, uh, I hope to find a window about the impact of the Haitian Revolution onto Santo Domingo. Uh, and so I ended up writing one of my first articles is about that period. It's about uh, a rebellion in the early 1810s, well, a conspiracy in the early 1810s. Uh, but I think like a number of young graduate students, I just uh, felt worried that I wouldn't find enough because at that moment in time, at that moment in time, the National Archives in Santo Domingo were undergoing major, major transformations. Uh, and I was a, I had not yet been to the archives in Sevilla or Madrid. And so I think the second summer of my program, I, I thought I better catapult forward in time. And the question of the War of Restoration is not very well discussed in English language literature, but is a principal moment, clearly, within Dominican historiography. And so that, that quickly caught my attention. So one of the things that I noticed 
as I read the book is um, the way that even the words that you use are a kind of major departure from the historiography, right? So usually the key word is the Haitian, occup- the Haitian invasion of Santo Domingo between yes. period 1820s to 1840s, right? And then there's a kind of brief kind of re-annexation or recolonization by Spain, and that's usually a footnote. Um, so I'm wondering when was that, when was the moment that you realized this was your story and and that you were going to kind of challenge everything that we knew about the Haitian so-called occupation. Yeah, most certainly. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, there are, there are multiple layers of misunder- willful misunderstanding happening um, yeah. about the relationships between the Dominican Republic and Haiti. And then there's just the general distortion of national literatures. Uh, so that even the, the second period of the 1860s, it's very, very difficult to discuss annexationism within a nationalist historiography. It has to be an aberration or a blip, you know, or, or an act of treason. Right? Uh, and bringing in an understanding of racialized anxieties on the part of the elites uh, requires a much more complex conversation than most nationalist uh, literatures were have been in the past ready to tackle. Uh, so, so that question, the, the, it wasn't obvious about how I, I was going to discuss the restoration itself, but, but in terms of the, the Haitian unification period, it seemed obvious. Right? And, and some of the reason that it seemed obvious might have been uh, studies about the, the liberatory weight, concrete and ideological, of the revolution in all of these other sites, and knowing that in Santo Domingo there were many people who were well beyond a document regime, but who were really anxiously and hopefully looking to the tumult of the East. So first of all, in these small sites of sugar slavery, which do exist uh, in the South around the capital, particularly to uh, the West of the capital, there's sort of a five river uh, nexus there. And and the idea that those people would not or did not embrace this project uh, of liberation is just counter to any and all logic. (laughs) So, um, so so that was really a guiding, I think, commitment uh, or a guiding, a guiding principle in, in that early study. And it seems to me that you also had to use very different kinds of sources than the ones that we've seen in the past. So what kinds of sources do you use to tell the story? Hmm. Well, so uh, chapter one was the absolute bane of my existence <laughs> and a 10-year ten, a project. And I, I think about some of the ways that the field and practice of history has changed in those 10 years, and, and they've really helped in, in the search, which had to be, you know, wildly ambidextrous, uh, omnivorous, capacious, and, and sort of willful at many different points. And so some of the very best things I found in there I would find uh, by chance, uh, by like by protracted chance, right? But for example, um, there's a, a, a short poem of Haitian peasants mocking Riviere and his pretensions to recapture the East, for example. Or, uh, and, and the Dominican archives, again, are sort of a very uneven uh, source. So, there is stuff, there is a tremendous amount of stuff about the rebellion itself in Spain. A large amount of it you have to carry over to the archivist in Sevilla and ask, can you please cut this open because it has not been seen. Uh, but some of, some of the stuff... Um, some of the stuff in the first chapter is extant in the archives. It was just a really, really long uh, project of, of gathering it and sometimes turning it on its head. So your book 
also works against or at least historicizes and complicates the other very powerful narrative when we're talking about Haiti and the Dominican Republic, which is this kind of timeless animosity, right? Mm. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can offer us a, a, a re-described version of that relationship and how your book um, walks us through that, that complication. Sure. Right. Uh, I'd like to locate it um, so super briefly in a in a longer historiography of folks who've wanted to tell that kind of story because they are absolutely extant within Dominican historiography, especially some of the Marxist historians of the 1970s, Carlos Esteban Deive and and um, Franklin Franco Pichardo, and or some of the slightly newer work of Raimundo Gonzalez and others. But uh, in terms of like extended archival focus on that, especially the mid-century, 19th-century period there is much, much, much less. So there's another scholar, um, Quisqueya Lora, uh, who works primarily in Santo Domingo, who, for example, is another person who insists we cannot call the period of 1822 to 1844 an occupation. Maybe that makes sense for a few weeks in the capital in, I think, in early spring when there are troops there, right? But the rest of the time, it seems clear that it's embraced. And so if you, if you, it's a very, very difficult story to tell because there are two simultaneous stories being told at the same time. Uh, uh, the vast majority of the Dominican public who are living in relative rural autonomy, and then a really, really tiny cadre of elites whose story has uh, been the story of Dominican-Haitian relations. <laughs> Right, and you tell a, a very different kind of story with new, uh, yeah, with yeah. much resources. Yeah, yeah, it's it's simul it's simultaneously being re-narrated, right? So it's a question that you see about ideology in numerous other contexts. Uh, thinking about the other books um, in this series, you know, there's it's it's a, there's a question of the silencing of these voices and the simultaneous re-narration of people who wanted something very very different at mid-century, but they're not even around a cash crop regime, so. It's it's not just that they're being understood, it's that they have no written archive uh, whatsoever, right? And it's it's immediately obvious in the archive of their actions, some of their thinking, right? So there's a repeated amount of resistance and solidarity across the island in the 1840s, 50s, near civil war towards the end of the 1860s, joint opposition to U.S. interests in the 1870s, right? This This mobilization never stops, but in terms of writing and understanding about this moment, it's incredibly diffuse. Uh, and it seems, it seems obvious uh, that these solidarities have a certain number of core ideas about autonomy, about defense, about uh, distrust, about outside capital incursion, for example. And so the, the solidarities across the island is hard to overstate at that moment. Uh, and then there are a number of perhaps punctuating periods that come subsequent to that mid-century moment, perhaps the rise of Dominican sugar after the 1880s, most certainly the United States occupation of the Dominican Republic, and then the, the period about which everyone knows, the period that looms so large in historiography, which is that of the Trujillo dictatorship. And, and all of the all of the sort of willful writing and things that that elites wanted to be true at mid-century about these like catastrophic de descriptions of difference, right? Mm. Really a teensy, tiny, irrelevant minority period of um, depiction for these decades. 
uh, and then later become the truth about those stories. Right. Yeah. So like you say, it's a double story that's being told. But then on top of that, more and more layers. And one of the layers that I was really interested in was the rivalry between Spain and the United States and and more generally the the presence of the United States uh, and the way that um, some of the things that you're describing are actually reactions against that presence. So I was, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about the U S as an actor in this, in this story. Yeah, most certainly. I think this is a moment of tremendous uh, geopolitical transformation in the greater Caribbean mid-century. I mean, uh, witnessing the the so-called Mexican-American War makes all of these questions of defensive autonomy or the or for some elites, the, the prospect of annexation, much more acute uh, and concrete than they would, for example, for elites who are trying to make new states in South America, right? And so, um, and, and, and yet you see a story where the, the French and the Spanish, particularly, and the British are sort of abetting this, uh, are, are not willing to totally cede yet U.S. hegemony in the region. And so uh, there's a tremendous, again, and speaking of a bifurcated story, there's just a tremendous amount of imperial energy. And so elites interpret this in a number of ways. Often they would like to, to hitch their cart to this industrial and still slave hegemon. And then at a more popular level, many people are, are very, very, very anxious about it. And it's never quite so um, dichotomous as that, right? So you have uh, the work of Michel Gobat or others who are talking about um, this is this moment as a, as a real laboratory for the for ideas about Latin America, the coinage of the word Latin America and how that is born out of resistance to or a sense of resistance to United States imperialism. Right. But I think the I think the, the amount of pressure and the anxiety that is felt in this region is something that makes it have something more in common with other sites of imperialism throughout the new sites of new imperialism uh, throughout the world, more so, uh, for example, than than what you might see in different places in South America. Well, yeah. And the other thing that happens with this is that it pushes this idea of the so-called American century back to the 1850s rather rather than starting in 1898, right? So you see all of the kind of backstory. And then um, 1898 makes a lot more sense in the light of, of all of the things that you're talking about. Certainly. I'm scribbling that down as a good point. <laughs> um, so, okay. So, um one of the other things I, I found really interesting in the book was when Spain kind of re-enters the picture. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't know, whatever um, word you want to call it, annexation or, or reattachment or whatever it is. Um, and so, I, but you have a really interesting sort of description of socially and how that, how that sort of um, uh, touches people's everyday lives. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about that. What kinds of things was Spain interested in sort of imposing and how successful were they? Right. Yeah, it's a totally contradictory and haphazard and rapid reoccupation, which I think harkens back to two questions ago when you're talking about this time is a period of a possibility of tremendous like shift and transformation and experimentation, but also this like deeply racist cauldron of imperial energy. Uh, I mean, the, the, it's the Cuban captain general who basically has rushed to sign off on this together with the desperate Dominican president. Uh, and he sort of 
it's it's not totally clear what he thought would come out of it. So he's writing from this plantation center, suggesting that this can be a free labor space, probably hoping to provoke uh, legislative reform within the Spanish Empire towards some sort of greater integration, I guess, autonomy and federalism. But the, in the point of actual fact, they arrive and they have no intent for example, of letting black and brown men serve in the military alongside Cuban Span, Spanish troops who've been stationed in Cuba. And so uh, the way in which they hold themselves to a putative silence around race, but then enact racist practices, uh, uh, plays out in a number of different realms. And, uh, and also just a misunderstanding of moving from a plantation space to one where subsistence agriculture is more like the mode of production, right? So they managed to offend many different sectors. Uh, but but the, 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 the mustering out of the Dominican military, I think, is one of the most uh, critically uh, affecting experiences of the early occupation. It's a very important, if in, at sometimes informal institution in different parts of the Dominican Republic, uh, it's a very humiliating and unfamiliar experience. Uh, there's a, a, a deep military tradition across the island in a way that if we were to go back off topic to several questions ago, you might say points out some of the solidarities across the island because it's it's a common tradition of defense of emancipation. Some of the military commands that they're using are still in French. Right? And so and so that experience is shocking. Uh, but then there are other places where the occupation perhaps never reaches or these sort of center island towns where maybe they spend send a priest from Tarragona or something. And, and that person is like a difficult figure, perhaps of veneration. They don't really want to bother him in the early rebellions, right? But also, also one that poses the potential of a serious reorganization of people's lives, even when it's not an occupying force. And so the response to that occupation, I argue in the book, it, it predates even the arrival of the first troops. It's crushed, it's, but it's in, in multiple sites you see a very keen and astute understanding of what it means that these people, despite any discourses of fraternity with Spain, might be arriving from the plantation state of Cuba onto this soil and a rejection of that from really early days. So this book has a lot of military history in it. Um, and, but you're really careful not to make it an entirely masculine story. And I would, I really appreciated that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what role women played. Sure. Yeah, that uh, I never thought I would end up writing military history. <laughs> this is the, this is this is the podcast of thematic security. Um, so I, I rely on the work of scholars who have done such fantastic speculative, theoretical, and concrete work uh, about women's role in rebellions in other settings. Oftentimes, uh, so some, so Florencia Malone, for example, uh, but oftentimes in the plantation context. So I'm thinking of the recent work of Aisha Finch uh, or the work of Stephanie Camp and, and understanding uh, the organizing roles, even when the roles don't look exactly the same, the mutually constitutive roles of different people moving in different places when rebellion against a much more powerful actor is at hand. Okay, so, so clearly the questions of mobility in 
Tobacco Town, Santo Domingo are not the same as the questions of mobility in plantation spaces in West or West Central Cuba. Uh, but the scholarship, the scholarship, I hope, uh, can inform, and even if it's just speculation. And there are a few sites, there are a few sites uh, in the archives where you see explicitly not just the gendered appeals that the Spanish elites and the Dominican loyalists are making, which are sort of expected and wrote, uh, but but also their description uh, of of women's role in alerting people where where the fighting is moving, right? And then also their flight, uh, either individually or with families, outside of towns. I mean, everyone is burning down the town. It's it's hard to overstate the level of community understanding and collective panic that this new occupation brings. Right. And I think that the question of communication and the circulation of information is really important here and the role that women play. You point that out a couple of different times, Um, but it seems to be an important part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, knowledge of terrain and the fact that uh, they might be a small guerrilla power with few bullets and few guns uh, and and yet win is like it's hard to overstate how important geography is. It's Mm -hmm. it's so exciting to be writing at a moment where there's so much uh, really productive, creative. Again, I return to the word speculative as a as a as a political positive, as an imperative in our scholarship, uh, writing about geography and space in our understanding understanding in our in our sort of patching together uh, of subaltern political ideologies in this period mm-hmm. uh, because it's that knowledge of territory that is so critical and that allows them to fight such a lopsided fight because I said this I said this elsewhere in a, in a in an article that will come out eventually uh, but there are no generals defending emancipation outside of Haiti and so the the the, the forces that that emancipated peoples throughout the Caribbean and in the Dominican Republic, in this case, particularly a confronting, have nothing but a potentially complicitous elite facing them and, or like the just the collective energy of outside capital that's only gaining with steam power, right? The sense that it's 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 incumbent upon our communities to defend ourselves versus a largely more powerful enemy, I think cannot be overstated in terms of electrifying the resistance. But returning to questions of uh, gender and telling war stories, and I, mean, I also don't want to vaunt a, a neat, easy, heroic story. I mean, this comes at a really high cost. It never, it never affords women the same prestige or language of political belonging uh, that it does uh, for men who participate in these struggles. It, it destroys political spheres. It destroys crops. It destroys homes. I mean, it's not, it's not something that's a, a, an easy, happy tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was curious about the way you went about writing and framing the question of race, because it's not explicitly uh, framed in, in terms of race and racial ideology, but, but there's certainly questions of race sort of throughout. And even as we've been talking, you've been sort of talking about that. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about um, the, the way that you made decisions about how to write about race and, and questions about race. Sure, sure. Uh, I think I think returning to the question of the grand problem of the first chapter, all capital letters, like <laughs> it's. I, I mean, there is a particularly pernicious and willful silence around racism on the part of Dominican elites. They 
they share the putative republicanism of so many other projects throughout the hemisphere, but their silence is just doubly treacherous because they're vaunting this silence in direct contradistinction to black citizenship in Haiti. In their project of writing how different we are from, and sometimes they'll say exclusivist, right? Exclusivist Haiti or whatever uh, invective they're directing towards it, they they insist on that silence, not just as a way to mute claims within their own republic, but as the identity of the republic itself. So the problem in the first chapter is to lay bare what were the stratifications at play. And it's so hard to do that. <laughs> so, so the answer again became uh, to return to questions of geography and find where people are living and find descriptions of those communities and find where their networks of mobility were. And those informed so much about what their understanding would be about their relationship with uh, Haitian neighbors and compatriots or their understanding of a foreign hostility, for example. But it's really, really difficult to recover even the elite's thinking and private uh, private prejudices and closed-door public prejudices when they're making these appeals for white colonization and so on. Uh, and on the part of uh, different subaltern groups in different places, it's even more it's it's even more difficult outside of moments of rebellion. I think we can talk about the moments of rebellion in a moment, but outside of the moments of rebellion, it requires returning to this this very partial archive and speculating hard. And and sometimes there are, you know, there are these grand document collections. Uh, all obviously, maybe not obviously, but they are uh, uh, almost principally the writing of elites. Uh, by this historian named Emilio Rodriguez de Morisi. And sometimes he will capture little snippets of things that you have to seize on, but they, you can never seize on them in, a, in, a, in an immediately satisfactory way. So he'll gather, for example, 19th century poetry, no date, but, but the poetry will just be so a popular couplet, for example. And you see very explicit language about... Uh, discourses of esteem about blackness, about white prejudices, about white supremacy in these little, and it stands to reason, right? Because one of the ways that Dominican historiography has often been distorted is it's been set in this uh, conflict with Haiti, but somehow outside of the Caribbean. And setting aside those questions uh, of the Dominican Republic and Haiti together, you understand that these people are living in a deeply Caribbean space at a deeply difficult time. And it's one of those other things that you think, uh, here are all of the issues and hostilities with which they're being confronted. It stands to reason that they proffer explicit discourses of esteem in response to these norms. Where can I find them? Right. Uh, it's just it's just a long project. I think. Yeah. I mean, and this idea of um, the history of the Dominican uh, Republic or Santo Domingo existing outside of Caribbean space, I found really interesting because I did feel that one of the things that your book does, and maybe we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but it really sets the stage um, in a very clear way for the Cuban Wars of Independence and Emancipation. So what you get is uh, sort of 100 years of struggle against colonialism and slavery in one place or another. And these places, as you point out, um, are very closely connected during this period, and they are get connected through the mail and through these kind of steamships and all those other kinds of things. So you can no longer tell those stories separately. I really, sure. uh, I thought that was a really important point. Sure, sure. I mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things that Haitian Revolutionary Studies has uh, informed us uh, so completely and fruitfully. 
and yet somehow outside of the so-called age of revolutions, our imagination about that movement falls away for some reason for a time. Because mm-hmm. there's these, there are these mid-century decades of retrenchment and hostility, but those same boats are moving, and the same newspapers are being carried there. And perhaps the, new, I mean, you don't have a massive outflow of people, you don't have something that's easy to track. Uh, but you again, you know, it's one of those things that one, as a historian, just sort of logics out, right? That it's clear that people are trading information about the varied state of emancipation in different islands, very keenly, very astutely, very urgently. And so at different points you see, for example, um, I'm thinking of an article by uh, John Henry Gonzalez about the the migration of people from the Turks and Caicos Islands to the north coast of what is then a united Haiti, or the tiny little snippets of information about the folks who are uh, fleeing an intensified regime in Puerto Rico in those decades into Santo Domingo. We barely, barely, barely know about them, right? Mm-hmm. But they're, they're obviously trading uh, information in good times and in and make perhaps more urgently in these difficult times. So the question is, why has the Dominican story been left out uh, of this uh, story of Cuban independence, right? Why, is, why, when it's two wings of the same bird, is the body, uh, which, which has sustained Caribbean independence for 60 or 70 years, omitted? You know, and I think I think it's another question of this simultaneous re-narration, even as it's happening. I mean, even everyone could tells the story of Massimo Gomez, you know, who who leaves Santo Domingo having fought on the Spanish side, recapacita, and then he arrives in Cuba and is like, well, here we are fighting for independence quite quickly. Uh, but he's just understood as an exceptional figure, and if you even see how he's discussed as it's unfolding on the ground in Cuba, despite his tremendous acumen. And, and all of his achievements, the people will talk about uh, his disordered camp. You know, it reflects it reflects the conditions from which he comes, because the Dominican Republic is a largely, not uniquely, but largely subsistence space uh, at this moment in the decades of the 1860s, right? And it's just unknowable. It's just it cannot be the harbinger of Caribbean independence for many different groups. And so, despite its incredibly provocative role, I mean. You know the the flag for the grito the grito de Lares is modeled on the Dominican flag in, in in Puerto Rico, and despite this incredibly formative role, even as it's unfolding, it's sort of unimaginable. Yeah, and that was actually one of my the moments as I was reading this book, and Maximo Gomez shows up, and I realized that he in the Cuban historiography, which I'm more familiar with, he just kind of pops in, and he yeah. suddenly there he is, and there's no context about well, like what's he doing there, and wh- how does he know, you know, what to, all of those kinds of things. So I really, um, I really appreciated that as well. He's such a troubled figure, I gotta say. I mean, you know, I don't know about his life personally. I'm saying troubled in, in the historiography. <laughs> one of the one of the things that he he says is, and he's from Bani, which is right near that southern complex of uh, of unfreedom, uh, near the capital. And he says, I never even knew about this, uh, you know, this uh, exploited figure of the enslaved person until I arrived in Cuba. And you're like, really? <laughs> really, really, Gomez, because 
your town is very segregated, you know, and, and the, and the value of endogamous and in marriages and Bani is one of these things that leaves little record is sort of well known. And you see all of the rebellions that have happened. And when one sees, perhaps he didn't see, although I find it difficult that he did not, uh, one sees that all of the fighting, including in these Southern areas, in the Cibao, up on the North coast, all of this language of we are going to be re-enslaved is, is perhaps the principal motivator of many rural rebels and others. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that he was able to operate in this willful ignorance, well, he clearly hasn't, right? He's clearly also re-narrating his arrival to Cuba. Uh, perhaps he needs to explain why he was a loyalist in those earlier years. And so maybe if he can have a narration of, I just realized how bad things are now that I've arrived in Cuba, <laughs> not three years after all of my compatriots and co-islanders have like given so much and, and sacrificed and left their home and burned their towns, then, then perhaps that's the way he, re- he remembers it. But I, I find it an extremely instructive moment about about misunderstanding and occlusion and and about uh, race and racism and the history of slavery in Dominican soil as well. Mm -hmm. So how do you think your work and your research are going to be received or how have they been received in Haiti and the Dominican Republic? That's a really interesting question. So I gave a talk almost 10 years ago uh, in the archives in Santo Domingo about some of this research uh, and, and it's gone well. You know, it's, I think, I think there's a tremendous impetus in the academy down there around the writing of social history in the 19th century. It's one of the things in terms of document piles that's been the most difficult. It's easier to tell a colonial story, although that entails a lot of personal investment and time and and travel uh, sometimes to Spain. Uh, But the 19th century is like really foundational and and central in many people's minds to all of these narratives. And I, I think Many working historians, uh, amateur and professional down there, have so much energy behind looking for these new narratives. Um, and my, so one of the things that I'm really committed to uh, is obviously not only ongoing dialogue with a number of the uh, really fantastic scholars down there. I mentioned Quisqueya Lora, but there, there are so many others doing great work on the 19th century, uh, but also translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so And so... The book's already down with the Dominican uh, Academy of History. Let's see if it gets approved. I'm on it. <laughs> Find some research funds for that. And, and it's a, sort of a happy surprise on in the side of Port-au-Prince is to find that one of my earlier articles had already been translated and published in the publication of the Society of History and Geography. Uh, and I think... Um, you know, I think those dialogues uh, are stand only to, to build. I think the interest is absolutely there. And so the question is, can, can scholars who have had the tremendous institutional privileges of time and, uh, and other forms of investment then contribute to those dialogues with some more simultaneity than has happened in, in years past? So I've taken up lots of your time and it's been really fun chatting with you. I wonder, uh, just before we close, if I can ask, um, is there anything you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, you know, all of my all of my thinking as I was scribbling down in preparation for this uh, is actually just in praise of other scholars. I mean, I'm, I'm teaching a, a graduate class this semester about some new works in Caribbean history together with uh, Professor Ernesto Bassi in, uh, up in Ithaca. 
And we've seen so much really wonderful 18th century and 19th century work come out that is thinking about space uh, and de-romanticizing mobility. And I'm, I'm thinking of Marisa Fuentes' work or Roshana Johnson's new book. And, and I think that is one of the central questions of the 19th century is how not, I mean, in addition to the questions that they address centrally in their book, is how not to romanticize um, the very different shifting ideas of the possible that lead to this wild incident of of annexation, right? Because even with all, even with sort of exceptional stories about mobility, you have like the reason that this is imaginable in so many people's eyes is this tremendous new wave of imperial aggression that affects the Caribbean so centrally, concretely and discursively. So not just the actions of the United States, but also all of the pressure against Caribbean independence that is informing new projects and, and deepening projects of colonialism in Africa and Asia and all these multiple sites, right? So I, I think the interconnectedness of that, those histories back across the Atlantic uh, and to other difficult and really, I don't want to say pessimistic literatures, but, uh, but literatures about this mid-century uh, entrenchment, I think, is really vital. And sometimes... Uh, so it's really great to see how other scholars are grappling with these difficult questions. Natasha Lightfoot's uh, book about emancipation, for example, is just asking tough local and imperial questions all at once. And it's just a really generative moment to be writing in Caribbean studies. I should say that we're reading your book next week. I'm so excited about it. <laughs> Isles of Noise I'm speaking of. So so it's it's a really exciting time and, and it's wonderful to to work with so many wonderful thinkers and colleagues. I agree. I think it's a, it's a fantastic time for our field and my, my pile of people to interview just gets bigger and bigger, which is really, sure really wonderful. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. And, and, and you must really have, I mean, I'm making this dialogic, I'm sorry, but you must really have such wonderful perspective, just steadily reading all this new great stuff that come out, does come out. It, it really is. It's fantastic. And um, it just generates a kind of a desire for more and more because people are doing such terrific work and coming at things from such interesting perspectives. It's really, um, it's, it's wonderful. Um, right. Well, so I'll what do you, podcast. <laughs> what are you, uh, are, what are you working on next? What's your new project? If you have one, it has a tentative title, uh, uh, which is other 1898s. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's a it's a multi-sided and multi-perspectival entry into uh, lesser told stories of that year, but really that decade, right? Mm-hmm. In order to um, to return to these questions about defensive sovereignty or an unease about it, or about um, you know the changing fate of cash crop agriculture and and how people are trying to carve out spaces there in both small and large islands. So there there's a chapter. It's sort of chapter by chapter on a number of different islands, and it returns for several chapters to Haiti and the Dominican Republic. But it goes to Dominica, for example, um, and Martinique, uh, um, among other sites, and and Puerto Rico. So to Mayagüez specifically. Uh, so I think I think it's consistent with some of these major intellectual concerns and, and also in terms of framing like unrealized geographies, you know, oh, I should shout out Ernesto again, speaking of unrealized, you know, popular geographies. I want to, I want to tell some stories that are very much in dialogue with that really rich literature on, on Cuba and the Philippines and Hawaii and, and other sites. That sounds wonderful. 
Fingers crossed. <laughs> Thanks so much for talking to me. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me too. Thanks again for all of your time. Thanks for listening to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, and I hope you can join me next time.